Let us pray. Lord God, you are Lord of the harvest. Give ears to hear, give eyes to see, so that hearing, seeing, understanding, grasping hold, and holding fast to the truth, many may believe and be saved through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm going to be preaching on the passage from Colossians, third chapter, verses 12 through 17. I've included a study sheet. Uh, since putting that together, I've diverged from it at several places, so it's not a complete following of the sermon. Uh, but nonetheless, it's there for you to follow along if you wish. As uh, Pastor Barry said, Colossians' third chapter, beginning at the 12th verse, is a very rich telling of what it means to live together as a church. And that's what our sermon series has been on, living together as a church. And for the sake of clarity, I want to paraphrase what was written, or written in red, earlier in the service, so let me do that. This is Colossians 3, 12 through 17, paraphrased. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, Be compassionate, be kind, be humble, be gentle, be patient, bear with each other, forgive one another, be loving, let Christ's peace rule in your hearts, be thankful, let Christ dwell among you richly, teach one another, admonish one another. Sing to God with gratitude. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Fifteen commands in six verses. And those commands tell us how to treat one another as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved. It couldn't be clear, don't you agree? It's quite clear what we're to do. Now, do you believe that we ought to treat each other this way? Is this what you believe? Yeah. Okay. Do you believe that God's Word teaches us to treat each other this way? Do you believe this is in God's Word? And do you believe that we would be a happier, more godly church if we followed this teaching? Would you believe that? Well, okay, it's settled. As Nike says, just do it. And really, uh, that makes it for a very short sermon. I understand that the last time I preached at the 11 o'clock, it set a record for the longest sermon. Uh, I enjoyed the sermon. Perhaps others didn't. (laughs) But nonetheless, we could stop right here. And the easiest thing in the world for me to do would be just to read those 15 commands and say, now just go ahead and do that. And did I miss anything? Is there a problem beyond just do it? Now, if you're not doing these things, then the question becomes, why aren't you doing these things? Why am I not doing these things? Why am I not showing compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other, forgiving others? Why am I not doing this? You know, I conducted an informal survey 
over the last week. I talked to some of you all in the cafe, and I talked to some of my clients who are Christians, and asked people why they didn't do what they were commanded to do. And uh, by the way, if you believe right now that you're doing a good job being compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, bearing with others, and forgiving others, if you think you're doing a pretty good job with that, then you can cut this sermon short and get out to the cafe and have your lunch early. But if you're having difficulty, as I am, then we need to hear what we do about these commands. And let me tell you the answers I got in my informal survey when I asked here and out on the road. I asked people, why do you not follow the commandments of God? Why don't people do that? And people said, well, people are busy. They're too busy to do this. Or people are lazy. They just want the easy way. Of course, the person saying that was not saying, I'm lazy. They were saying, you're lazy, and that's why you're not doing it. You know, people just need to try harder. That's the solution. Well, Ted, remember, people aren't perfect. We're only humans. But the problem is much deeper than all these excuses. The answer is found in three parts, and I'm going to share those three parts with you. The root of the problem of not doing what God commands us to do, much less these 15 commands in six verses, the root of the problem is that you and I do not do, you and I do what we desire to do. You and I do what we really desire to do. What you want to do is what you do. You and I desire what we believe is true. So we do what we desire to do, and we desire what we believe is true. So therefore, what I believe is true drives my desire, which drives my action. What I believe is true drives my desire to do a thing, which in turn drives my action. Uh, as some of you know, Diane and I are great Anglophiles. We love England, and we try to get there as often as we can. Some people go to Las Vegas, we go to England. We like a place that's overcast, drizzly, and chilly. <laughs> we can't stand the seashore. But uh, England's full of these buried treasures, and they're called hordes. And there's any number of reasons over the last 2,000-plus years why, why people in, in ancient England buried these treasures. And in 2009, Terry Herbert, who had a, uh, one of those detectors, uh, metal detectors, went through a newly plowed farmer's field, and he found the biggest hoard ever found in England. It was an Anglo-Saxon treasure that was buried, oh, about 1,300 years ago. And it, it, it amounted to 244 sacks of Anglo-Saxon gold. 244 sacks, and equaled $5 million in value. Now, by law, Terry and the landowner got to keep that. But that treasure was of such great value that the museum in the area, in the area of Staffordshire in England, the Birmingham Museum, had a nationwide campaign, and they raised the money, they raised the $5 million, the 3.5 million pounds, they raised that to buy the treasure 
from Terry and the landowner, and that treasure is now in the Birmingham Museum. And you know, Jesus taught the same thing in a short parable of only two sentences. I've recently discovered this parable and its great meaning. Listen to this. You know this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field. And when that man found that treasure, with joy he sold everything he had and went out and purchased that field. When Terry was with his uh, metal detector in that field in Staffordshire in England, <clears throat> he did not find a pit of animal bones left over from slaughter and pot shards. That's what he did not find. He would not have sold, the British Museum would not have sold everything to get that treasure. But because it was a treasure, and it was perceived and believed to be a treasure, and it was in truth a treasure, the museum had that desire, and that desire led to the campaign. Truth drives desire, drives action. And in my informal survey, to be more specific, because it's one thing to say, how many people in our church do you think are compassionate or caring or forgiving? That's very vague. Let's make it much more specific. In that informal survey, I ask, what percentage of those in this church today as we sit here in the cafe and look out at the both services going on, dig deeply into the Word of God on a daily basis. They just don't read a few verses and says, I've done my quiet time and put it aside. But every day, or nearly every day, they dig deeply into the Word. What percentage do you think? I mean, really, what do you think? What percentage of the church does that, of the folks sitting here today? Well, uh, and my pages are mixed up. I apologize. We talk about boring down deep into the Word. I use that expression, bore down deep into the Word. Holly Campbell uses a wonderful expression. She talks about mining the Word of God, like you're digging down into it. And there's a great expression from the Book of Common Prayer, one of the prayers in the Book of Common Prayer. And it tells us that we're to hear Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the word. Do you believe what the Bible says is true? Do you? Do you really believe what the Bible says is true? Because this is what the Bible says in Psalm 119. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Do I need some light in my life? You betcha, I need lots of light. The unfolding of your words gives light. And again in Psalm 119, My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I love that translation. The psalmist is saying, I love God's word exceedingly. And in that beginning of Psalms, Psalm 1, The righteous man's delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Do you believe what the Bible says about digging deep into God's Word? Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are to dig deeply, to mine His Word, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest His Word? 
Do you believe that's true? Well, here's the results of the survey. When I ask people, how many folks do you think in this church, or with my clients in your churches, and these were, every one of them was an evangelical church, really dig deeply into God's word on a daily basis? The highest number was 25 to 30%, and the lowest number was 2%, and the middle number was 10%. That was the number most often uh, selected. When people said, I said, tell me the truth. How many people do you think really dig into God's word? Well, if that's true, brothers and sisters, it seems that you and I don't believe the word of God. Now, when it comes to giving, this is even simpler. The Bible says 10%. And it says it in Malachi, the Lord of hosts says, you are robbing me. But you say, have we robbed you? How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. But in my research, I find giving by evangelical Christians, those who are supposedly born again, love Jesus, have a home in heaven, is about 4%. That's average. 4% or 10%. What's the big deal, Ted? What's the big deal between those two? Well, if you had a boss who hired you to do 100% of the work and you gave 40% of the work, you would be without a job. It seems that you and I really don't believe that the word of God is true. And this is the real problem. This is the root problem. It's not that you and I misbehave. It's not that you and I don't love very well. It's not that we hold grudges. It's not that we worry or we blame God. It's not that we say unkind things or remain silent when someone is being hurt or are miserly and don't tithe. That's not the problem. It's simple. You and I don't, in truth, believe what God is saying is true. And you know that great expression, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Maybe that's good for evolution. But when it comes to our personal lives, it's more like the Bible says it, I kind of believe it, or really don't believe it, and I'm doing the best I can, or whatever. When I look at my own behavior in this whole area, my thoughts, my attitudes, my lack of desire and enthusiasm for the things of God, I despair. What I'm saying today should make you despair of yourself. If it doesn't, you're, you might as well go to the cafe right now. You're not getting it. I ask myself, how can I ever hope to live a life that's a blessing to the church and others if I'm like this? If my life is the evidence, if my life and the way I live my life and the way I do not follow God's word, if that is evidence of being one of God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, that evidence says that I should go to hell. Are we all having a good time? You know, I really appreciate the words of this great Anglican bishop in his second half of the 19th century. Bishop William Howe did a great work in the slums of London, and he wrote lots of wonderful hymns. And one of my favorite hymns, and I I will tell you 99% of you don't know this hymn, but I'm going to read it to you. And it's got a number of verses. 
He, he wrote the hymn, by the way, for all the saints. For all the saints. Some of you know that. He wrote those hymns for children, by the way. Look at the theological content. And we seem happy today to give our kids, Jesus loves me, this I know. And this hymn goes like this. It is a thing most wonderful, almost too wonderful to be, that God's own Son should come from heaven and die to save a child like me. That is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing that Jesus came from heaven to die to save me. But a couple of verse letters later, it says this. It is most wonderful to know his love for me so free and sure. Oh, yes, his love is a wonderful thing. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that fill you with wonder? Wonderful, full of wonder. But tis more wonderful to see my love for him so faint and poor. I mean, when in a hymn do you read that? When do you sing that? That says, yes, his love is wonderful, but even more wonderful, full of wonder and boggling, mind-boggling, that I in desperate need, desperate need of a Savior, that my love for him is so faint and pure, poor. That is a wonderful thing. It's a thing full of wonder. And the solution to the situation that I've laid out for us is at the frontier of my journey into the gospel. I've been on a course in the last several years of discovering deeply what the God wants in our lives and answering the question, how can I be a new creation in Christ and still act the way I do? And this is the fruit of what I've discovered. If someone finds it in error, then they can preach in future Sundays and correct it. But the second part of the answer is that the answer is not me. I'm not the answer to that problem. I am not the answer to my faint and poor love for Jesus. My excuses are not, for not trying do not work. I find myself to be dependably a consistent failure in the Christian life. About a year ago, I had a meeting with a husband and wife team who are Ukrainians, and they have missionary work in Moldova, which is right next to the Ukraine, or Ukraine. And I love this couple. They're a young couple. They're very excited about their work, very committed. And as I was sitting there, I had a chance to chat with Uliana, the wife, and, uh, for a little bit. And I said, Uliana, what, are you, what has the Lord shown you? What have you discovered about your faith, about Jesus, in the, since the last year we talked? And she got very puzzled in her face. And I said, no, I don't mean to be putting you under uh, pressure here, but I would be very interested. What has the Lord taught you? And she looked, got a strange look, and she looked over at her husband. She said something in Ukrainian to clarification. And she looked over at me, and she said, I can't, but he can I can't, but he can. I tell you, I almost teared up when I heard that. Because that's the truest statement there is in all of Scripture. And we get it in that book of Hebrews. Looking to Jesus, the author, the one who started, and the perfecter of our faith. Looking to Jesus, not looking at myself. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And what did Jesus do? How did he make it where I could not make it? Notice 
that the one another commands in Colossians' third chapter begin with the word therefore. And when, as Holly Campbell teaches me, uh, when you're therefore, you've got to find out why it's therefore. And, the, and I look back, and what is, after all of these uh, 15, uh, 15 commands in six verses, what is, Paul's pointing back to something that happened earlier in Colossians. And in this first three chapters of Colossians, he looks back and he tells us the basis of how all our behavior toward one another. He starts off by saying, you are God's chosen people. Do you know what? That before the creation of the world, that God chose you. That before there was even the foundation of any creation, that God had you on his mind, and he said, that is going to be my child. Colossians 1.22 says, he has reconciled us. He made things right between us. He knew we couldn't do it, so he went out and did it. Colossians 2.13, he forgave us all our sins. Even the ones you think are unforgivable, he forgave all of our sins. But much more than that, and many of us are happy up to that point. You say, oh yes, Ted, I know that Jesus did all this for me. He went and died on the cross. But there's more than that. It's a bigger story than simply the atonement and the crucifixion. It's the story of Christ's life in your life put together. Look what he says, Colossians 2.13. God made you alive. I was dead. I was absolutely dead in my trespasses and sins. There was nothing I could do, but he made me alive. You died with Christ. Have you ever thought about that, that when Jesus went on the cross, it wasn't simply he was shedding blood for you out there. You went up on the cross with him. You died with him on that cross. I bet many of you have never thought about that. It says, you've been buried with him. Not only did you die with him, but you were buried with him. He took you from the cross and put you into the grave. And when that stone was rolled across the entrance to the tomb, you were in that tomb with him. You've been raised with Christ. On the third day, when the light shone or whatever happened and burst open that tomb, and you went, and when Christ went up, when he resurrected from the dead, you were with him at the same time. Your life is now hidden with God in Christ, it says in Ephesians. We've been made to sit with him in the heavenlies. I'm already there in a very real way. I'm already there because I was with him from the first time he thought of me in creation. I've been with him ever since. And in Colossians 2.10 it says, you've been given fullness in Christ. I've been given fullness in Christ. Despite my behavior, I've been given. I've already been given and received fullness in Christ. In summary, in Colossians 1.13 it says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. He's transferred us. So all of the condemnation, all of our failure in this first part of my message... He's taken care of because he's transferred me from one to the other. This transferred life is called a new life. It was a life that was talked about by Ezekiel in the 36th chapter. It's what Bruce Bickle has been teaching at Brave Men, Life in Union with Christ. And it's found in John 15 and John 17. And that life is Christ in me and I in him. And this life, this new life, this transferred life, this life in union with Christ is not dependent on my good behavior and attitudes. It's not dependent upon how hard I try. 
It's not dependent on my feelings. It's a fact, and it's dependent only on what he did and what he's doing in, with, and through me now. Christ does not do his work and then say, okay, it's up to you now, Ted, from this point on. Good luck. I saved you from going to hell. I gave you a home in heaven. But now, good luck. It's up to you. Do the best you can. Hey, by the way, come to me occasionally when you're in trouble. You can pray to me. You know, sometimes when I hear preachers preach, I think of them, themselves as thinking, here's Christ, and here I am out here, as if I'm separated, and I'm going to him for help all the time. That's not the way it is at all. I'm, he's here, and I'm here. And he's doing his work, and he's working through me. And that is my only hope. Thank you, Pastor Barry. Third part. How do you do, and how do you and I begin to experience this life in union with Christ? You're going to say, Ted, great. Great teaching, solid teaching. I agree, or I have no idea what you're talking about, because I've never thought about me being in Christ and he being in me, and that when he died, I died, that I was on his mind at the moment of creation, that when, were you there when they crucified my Lord? I was there. I was on the cross with him. And when they took him down, they took me down with him, and they put me in the grave with him. And when he resurrected and burst forth from the tomb, I was there with him. And when he went up to be with his father, that's where I am. I am seated with him in the heavenlies. Perhaps you never thought of that before. It's always been kind of, I'm out here trying to do the best I can, and then there's Jesus. So how do we begin? Why don't I do the good that God commands me to do? Well, it's very simple. Going back to what I said earlier. You and I don't do the good we're supposed to do because we don't desire to do it. It's very simple. It's no more complicated than that. We really don't want to do it. And we don't desire, why don't we desire to do the good? Because I don't believe it's true. That's very simple, folks. It is very simple. The reason you don't tithe is because you really don't believe. Deep down inside, you don't believe that it's really something you need to do. And you don't dig into the scripture, you and I don't dig into the scripture, because we don't think it's really that critical. Do you know what? Quite a while ago, many years ago, I was dating a girl, and she was at the University of Kentucky, and I was at William & Mary. That train ride was a 17-hour train ride. I would get in that train on Friday after classes, go through the night, sleep upright in that train, spend Saturday with her, get on the train, and go all the way back to Williamsburg to be in class on uh, Monday morning. I did that because it was worth it. Because it was like that treasure buried in the field. That man went and sold everything because, in fact, he believed it was truly a treasure. And we will do the things God wants us to do when we believe in truth that it's that treasure. So the first truth drives desire, drives action. The first thing that we can do is to repent and ask for God's forgiveness. And it might be like this. Lord, I confess that I don't believe your word. You know, go ahead and say it. God's not shocked. He knows your heart. Remember the great uh, opening prayer in Anglican Communion. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. God knows it. Go ahead and tell him. Tell him you don't believe what he's saying is true. Because if you did, you'd be doing it. 
So you start off, Lord, I confess that I don't believe your word. I repent of my unbelief. Give me the grace of faith, trust, and reliance on you alone in Jesus' name. So the first thing we do is we repent and ask for God's forgiveness. Now, how can I then from that point on continue to experience union with Christ and do the good works, do compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness? How do I do those things? Colossians has the answer once again. Colossians 2, 6 through 7. And it says, Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him in faith. Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Okay, how did you receive Christ Jesus as Lord? How, what does scripture say? What is the basis for receiving Christ as Lord? For it is by grace through faith and not of your works. Okay, Ted, that's good for salvation, but now I've really got to get on the stick and do all this work and try harder and, and pour more, become more dedicated, more surrendered, more committed. That's what I need to do. No, by grace through faith and not of your works. By grace through faith. The whole Christian life is lived by grace through faith. God's grace is unmerited favor. He just pours through us by grace through faith. So the whole Christian life, and not just salvation, is a supernatural life lived by grace through faith. It is a gift of God and not of works. It's just like Uliana said. That's why what she said was so true. I can't, but he can. By grace through faith. With man it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Mark 10th chapter. God working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Hebrews 13th chapter. God is working on us. He is working in us what is pleasing in his sight. Oh, he's working on us if we cooperate. No, it doesn't say that. It says God working in us what is pleasing in his sight. I worked all the harder than all the other apostles, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I worked harder than the rest, but it wasn't me working. It was the grace of God working within me. He says it. I strenuously contend with all the energy. Paul says in Colossians, I strenuously contend. I work strenuously with all the energy that I can muster. No, with all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. His work is because of what Christ is doing in him. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, get on the stick, get going. How are you going to do it? Okay, great, I'm going to do it. But how? How do I do it? For it is God who works in you. God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. And this great final verse from Philippians, I am sure of this, I am sure of this, Paul says, that he that began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He that began a good work, did God begin a good work in you? Did God really begin that good work before you did any good work? Did he do it? Were you saved by grace through faith, a gift of God and not of your own self or of your own work? Did he really begin a good work in you? If he did begin a good work in you, what does he say? I will give you a chance to do better. I'll give you an opportunity to work harder to put your best effort forward. He that began a good and work in you will bring it to completion. Maybe God's lying. Maybe God's not going to bring it to completion. Maybe God will drop the ball. But I'm staking my life on the fact that he won't. 
and that he will bring my life, regardless of my feelings, actions, efforts, endeavors, everything, all my mess-ups, all my abysmal failings, he is going to bring it to complete completion on the day of Christ Jesus. By believing and holding the truth, hold, taking hold of the truth, by believing and taking hold of the truth, by repenting, by grace, through faith, most of all, because of union with Christ, Jesus living and acting out his life through me. That's what he's doing. He's living his life. Anything good, it's him. He's doing it. God changes my attitudes and behaviors, and I can begin to leave, live Colossians' third chapter. I begin to show compassion when I'd rather pass by on the other side. I begin to have kindness when I want to be critical. I begin to be humble when I want to be the center of everything. I become gentle rather than giving those other people what they deserve. I become patient rather than impatient. I give up my grudge holding and forgive, forgive just as the Lord forgave me. I give up my grudge holding. At peace, rather than worrying and agitation, peace rules in my heart. I'm thankful rather than ungrateful and complaining. I let the gospel dwell in me richly rather than meagerly. I admonish and teach in love rather than self-importance. I sing to God when I want to curse my situation and do all, not in my name or for my glory, I do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving him all the credit. Uliana was right. I can't, but he can. And thanks God, he does. Solo de gloria. To God be the glory. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, you are too wonderful for us. We cannot even begin to plumb the depths of your grace to us. But we thank you that in a miracle we cannot even begin to comprehend. You placed us into your son and your son into us. And based on that union with him, we can live a life by grace through faith and do the works that you have predestined us to do before the foundation of the world. We thank you for this incomparable love and mercy to us sinners. In Jesus' name, amen.